Hello, people of the world. This is a very late Sunday night into Monday morning edition of the Upper Bowl GM podcast. My name is Nick Ferraris. I just watched the Kansas City Chiefs eke out a win that was a lot closer than it should have been against the Denver Broncos on Sunday night football. But before we get into an in-depth recap of the weekend with a couple key takeaways from the major storylines of college and the NFL, got to remind everyone, you can find this podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere you can find a podcast, this podcast exists. And if it's not on that streaming service, by all means, feel free to reach out. I'll get the RSS feed on that streaming service, and you can get this podcast in the most convenient format available for you. It's just me riding solo tonight, late on a Sunday. Wasn't able to secure one of my friends or an expert analyst for a post-Sunday Night Football recap of football. But, I promise you, it's got a nice list of key takeaways from both college and the NFL. Interesting weekend, a lot of games in college canceled again, and the NFL keeps trooping on with some very eventful games today. We got two Monday night games tomorrow and a Tuesday night football game, so we'll get into it. We'll have a little fun. I mean, for what it's worth, the Giants did win a football game with Colt McCoy at quarterback today, even though he threw for less than 100 yards passing. I will see you guys on the other side of the drop with my notebook full of interesting tidbits and storylines to follow going forward. Last chance for the Cougars. Mel the catch, wrestled down on the two. Coastal wins it. And with that, we emerge from the dust and smoke of a busy weekend of football, both NFL and college, lots of storylines to follow. I'm just going to get right on into it, and we're going to start with the game I just watched and what I learned from watching the Chiefs eke out a close win against the Broncos. We've known for a very long time that as a head coach, Andy Reid, like Bill Belichick, likes to save things for important games. Granted, the second time around in a divisional matchup is usually a little more unique, once you, you play a team as frequently as you do your divisional opponents, you're able to learn things from them, pick up things, scheme tendencies, habits, things of that nature, and it makes playing against them a little easier. So the Broncos keeping it within a very big number, depending on where you look, it was between 10, 12 and a half, depending on what book. Denver keeping it relatively close is not unexpected. The second time around in divisional matchups is traditionally closer than the first time around, just from Sample size helps. The more you know about the team you're playing, the more you're able to prepare for them. So the Chiefs eking it, seemingly eking it out should seem like a relatively bigger story against the bigger landscape of the NFL where there doesn't seem to be a truly dominant team this year as there has been in years past. But what I think we can genuinely take away from the Chiefs' win against Denver tonight is that when Kansas City needs a play, they can find it. As long as they are in favorable situations, I feel like Mahomes, Kelsey, Hill, 
even Hardman or Demarcus Robinson or Sammy Watkins, they have the playmakers out wide in the slot, what have you, to find mismatches more or less every single time they met, they decide to drop Mahomes back to pass. And I think that's one of the interesting things we can take away from the Chiefs this year is that when they are in passing situations, they find themselves having a lot more success in terms of efficiency. Ethan Douglas of The Athletic has hammered home the talking point that the Chiefs offense has been less efficient this year as opposed to last year because they drafted Edward Delaire in the first round, and they've insisted on running the ball on first and second down and taken away from the number of passing attempts Mahomes gets during the course of a game. And I think it's worth repeating that point because it's a misconception that people in the football world have, it, that just because you have someone who's talented at running the ball doesn't mean you need to. And the way football is set up now, with the rules, the schemes, it is more favorable to pass on early downs and run later. If you have the ball in third and short, a fourth and short, running the ball is favorable in more cases than not. If you have it at fourth and three, third and three, or less in terms of distance, you're often case better off trying to run the ball. And I think it's worth talking about how the Chiefs managed to did the Chiefs did this tonight. Well, they told everyone that Edwards Alaire was gonna be active tonight, but he uh didn't end up playing tonight. It was a running back committee running back by committee approach where we didn't see Clyde touch the ball once tonight. So all I'm gonna say before I fit, wrap up this Chiefs point, because I, I do want to keep it moving. There is a lot to cover, but even though the Steelers are still the sole undefeated team going into tomorrow against the Washington R-Words, I will say I still think the Kansas City Chiefs are the best team in football. All, Even trailing as playing as poorly as the Chiefs did in the first half, I had no doubt in my mind they were going to come back in the second half, score a couple times, and comfortably assure me that they were fun. I think that's genuinely the barometer of a good team is at what score deficit I would bet on them on the money line, gambling-wise. And going into the second half, once Denver scored again and got that lead a little bigger, I was talking with a few of my friends in one of my group chats, and we all said once the Chiefs got less than three and a half on the live line, we were going to jump in. We were able to get the Chiefs minus one and a half or minus two and a half. Dove in. We salvaged a pretty rough Sunday and Saturday gambling-wise. Patrick Mahomes won us a little money. I think that's the best barometer of a quarterback we believe in, is if we're willing to bet on them when they're trailing on the live line. And... There's few quarterbacks on the planet in the history of football I would rather have my money on than Patrick Mahomes, if we're going to be completely honest. I mean, I'll save the MVP discussion for a little later. I know we're getting into the stretch run of football, but Mahomes is firmly, firmly, excuse me, firmly in front in that MVP discussion. At one point, he was plus 420 two weeks ago, maybe 300 two, three weeks ago. Now he's more than minus 250. Probably, the line isn't up after the game tonight, but I'd assume he's in the ballpark of minus 250, minus 300 after tonight. That dude's 
awesome at quarterback. Now, switching over to the NCAA, game day was live from Conway, South Carolina, and boy, did we have a fun one between Coastal Carolina and BYU. Sure, the CBS Bright Lights were on LSU and Alabama in Death Valley on Saturday night at 8 p.m., but God, if I wasn't captivated by every single minute of B of the Mormons versus the Mullets. I caught myself there. I was about to say BYU versus Coastal Carolina. But it was the game between the Mormons and the Mullets. And Coastal Carolina of the Sumbell Conference freaking went in there and gave it to BYU. That was an awesome football game between two teams that didn't know they were going to play each other until Wednesday night. And boy, was that fun. I was a little skeptical of Coastal Carolina going into that game. I had talked to a few of my friends who were a little more serious about gambling, and going into last week's Coastal Carolina versus App State game, they were all pretty convinced that App State was going to beat Coastal Carolina, and Coastal pulled it out last week, and they covered. Granted, it was on a late pick six, which kind of fucked a lot of people over, but I digress. A lot of people were skeptical about the uh, Chanticleer. I've had to drum that into my head that that's not a rooster, it's a Chanticleer. And I learned some interesting things from that BYU Coastal game. Number one, the group of five is just so much fun. You gotta give those conferences their, the respect that they deserve. I enjoy the American. I've got to respect the Sun Belt a little more. I've got to respect the Mac. Those conferences are just, they're fun. The style of football is a little different. It's a little less pro style than what you might see in the SEC, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, Big 12, what have you. But they have fun. I, it's complicated to explain the kind of scheme that Coastal Carolina runs on offense. The way I saw it described by a prominent college football writer was a spread option offense where they run a lot of read option concepts where it's just the quarterback and the running back in the backfield and the quarterback has the, uh, the decision to just tuck it and run or hand it off while also being in a three or four wide set most of the time. And we've got to give respect to McCall, the quarterback for Coastal Carolina, who held his own against a pretty staunch BYU defense that had been pretty strong against the run and the pass in their the course of their season. To be fair, it's worth pointing out that BYU has not played a ton of great teams and that, for the most part, they've just beaten up on very bad teams and run up the score, and that that's what allowed them to get as high as they did in the rankings. And I'm going to get to Zach Wilson in a minute about what the – what I can take away from that performance against a not great defense, but a good conceptual defense. But what I saw from Coastal was an offense that was able to throw with the potential for a big play at any time. And the threat of the run is what kept the BYU defense honest against the pass. Marable, CJ Marable, yes, I know the running back's name for Coastal Carolina, had a terrific game. Ran the ball with great efficiency, averaged more than five and a half, six yards per carry, and 
every single time he touched the ball, I was pretty sure he was going to get close to or, or a first down outright. And like I was just saying about Mahomes, and there's no better feeling than betting on a good quarterback to come from behind. When you have a lead, a running back who's able to pick up five and a half, six yards of carry every single time, that is painful. And as someone who dumbly bet BYU minus ten and a half Saturday morning convinced that they were going to just bully the Chanticleers, I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson doubting the Chanticleers. I gotta give credit to what Coastal did. And the thing is, it's not that BYU played particularly poorly. It was a very close, tight game. It's that in those key situations where it was third and short, Coastal was the team that was able to convert. And BYU had a hard time moving the ball solely because of how many times they were in third and medium or third and long. I will say, I do think if the right team drafts Zach Wilson, the quarterback from BYU, I think he could be a successful NFL quarterback because of his toolbox. He's got above-average mobility. He's able to run very well. He's got a very strong arm where he's able to throw on the run. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm the first one to call him Mormon Manziel or Mormon Mahomes, but he's able to direct traffic with his left hand while he's moving around in the pocket or out of the pocket and then throw across his body with a considerable amount of velocity and still manage to hit his targets down the field. I think if the right team drafts Zach Wilson, he will be a solid to successful NFL quarterback. And it's a interesting way to view this game because it was the first time BYU went up against a top 20 defense. I remember specifically in my group chat with my friends from high school, one of my friends said, are we sure this is really a top 20 defense? Can we say that about Coastal Carolina? Just because they were ranked 18 going into the game, does that really translate to being a top 20 defense? It's safe to say that Coastal Carolina, with their heavy defense, they ran a lot of blitzes, they made Zach Wilson keep stepping his feet. It, 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 it's worth pointing out that one of my friends said that Zach Wilson reminded him of Johnny Manziel which is natural, above-average mobility for a short pocket, not pocket, but a short quarterback who moves around in the pocket, has a decent arm, but to be fair, Zach Wilson has a significantly better arm than Manziel ever did. But when they put Wilson under pressure, he struggled, and that's fair. There are quarterbacks in the NFL who, when you put them under pressure, they struggle significantly. Whether you're talking about Baker Mayfield, you're talking about Jared Goff, there are quarterbacks who are relatively successful at the NFL level that when you put them under pressure, they struggle to complete the ball efficiently and accurately down the field. And if you put Wilson in a decent offense, I feel like he could be a solid NFL quarterback, but it depends who drafts him. And that's a smooth way to transition into takeaway number two from the National Football League as one in a football color commentator Lewis Riddick likes to refer to it as defense 
defense, defense. No one is going to tell you that the Giants won today because Colt McCoy was under center for them. Like I wrote in my brief column slash scouting report of Colt McCoy, Sunday morning for Gotham Sports Network, as long as he didn't turn the ball over and the Giants were able to play good defense and strong special teams, they would have a solid chance to win today. And they won outright as double-digit underdogs up there in Seattle. I hate, hate, hate to give general manager Dave Gettleman credit, but it is worth saying that to this point, it feels like Joe Judge is the guy. Being head coach of the New York Football Giants, as Chris Berman likes to call them, is not an easy job. We saw Ben McAdoo wilt. We saw Pat Shermer wilt under the pressure that comes with the job. It is not easy. And I hate to give credit to a football coach for just playing teams close. John played a lot of close games under Pat Shermer. They didn't win them. I'm still not totally convinced that Joe Judge is going to be the first slash second, depending on your opinion, of Brian Flores down in Miami. Belichick disciple to be a good coach at the NFL level, but at the very least, I don't think he's met Patricia Romeo Cornell bad. The Giants had no business even being in the game today against Seattle. Seattle has one of the most explosive offenses in all of football with DK Metcalf and Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett. Those are three of the most explosive players in the entire sport. It's worth noting that Tyler Lockett has been dinged up and not 100%, and Ben Baldwin of The Athletic has pointed out several times this year and last year that when Lockett is hurt, Seattle struggles to push the ball down the field, and it makes their offensive coordinator more inclined to run the ball on early down situations and make, set them up for more predictable passing situations, which is one of the key takeaways I've had over the last year, year and a half of really trying to peel back the nitty-gritty and analytics of football, is that when you are in an obvious passing down, it sets up the defense a lot easier to play you in a prevent style and prevent you from converting that third down and short, long, whatever. The, typically, we consider a passing down to be either third and long or second and short. Those are the two situations in which conventional football version is you take a chance and you got to get those yards. If you're in second and short, you typically take a shot because you feel that even if you don't convert it on second and three or less, you can still run the ball and get the first down and reset what your plan is. Or, if you're in third and five or longer, it's a lot harder to run the ball for six yards than it is to throw the ball for six yards or more. So, when you're in an obvious passing situation, it allows the defense to either A, pin their ears back in a rush, and you send five guys or six guys against the five offensive linemen, or B, it allows you to drop seven guys into pass coverage and rush four and force a receiver to get open. And today, the Giants defense did a really strong job of not allowing Seattle's offensive players to get open down the field. 
sure, you have to account for the fact that DK Metcalf, no matter what, is going to have some plays. He was one of the best receivers in football, but they managed to limit him. Tyler Lockett was not nearly as explosive as he usually is. David Moore was non-existent today. And Seattle's tight end position is more or less a non-factor aside from in the red zone. Yeah, Will Disley had a nice season two years ago, but he tore his Achilles, he hasn't been the same since, and Seattle doesn't focus on the tight end in their passing game. So, it's set up nicely for the Giants today, and I gotta give them credit. They did what they needed to do. They forced Seattle into bad passing situations where they were able to play coverage, and I don't want to say that's all you need to do at the NFL level, because obviously there's more that goes into winning at the NFL level than just, you know, forcing the other team into bad situations, but the Giants managed to win with a quarterback with less than 100 yard passing today, and yes, I was on the Colt McCoy under on passing yards, because I knew that even if the Giants won today, it wasn't because the Texas product was going to be good under center. It... It's interesting to peel back and think about how far the Giants have, relatively speaking, come since last year. In these close games, I don't want to say I have confidence in the Giants' ability to pull it out in the last eight minutes of a one-score game, but I'm not as skeptical as I was last year under Pat Shermer, or two three years ago, excuse me, under McAdoo, with the offense where it was predictable. I gotta give them credit. They managed enough today. They were able to run the ball effectively. And it's a shame they weren't able to do it with Saquon as their running back because I feel like if the Giants had had Saquon this entire season, they'd probably have at least two more wins. They probably would have beaten the Rams and they probably would have beaten the Eagles the first time around if they had a healthy Saquon who's able to give them explosive plays out of the backfield. Don't get me wrong. I like what Wayne Goldman gives you as your, I don't want to say spellback because he's not a tr- traditional spellback in terms of skill set, but he's been efficient at running the ball. The Giants offensive line has managed to get some push upfield, get to the second level, give the running backs actual alleys to rush between. And it's able to keep the defense off balance and into where it actually has to guess of whether it's a passing or rushing situation. And I think that will genuinely help the Giants a lot next year. Because if Saquon isn't stuck into a, okay, it's first and ten, we got to run the ball on first and ten, if the Giants are a little less predictable on offense, it will make Saquon's life a lot easier, and I think it will help his production as a running back. Yeah, I still don't think you should pay him after next year, but that's another story for another day, but... For at least the moment, the Giants are in first place in the NFC East. Somehow. Somehow. Granted. I will say. I know I've said I will say a lot tonight. It's been a long football Sunday. I've had some adult beverages. The Giants hadn't broken Dak Prescott's leg. I do think the Cowboys are in first place of this division. And that probably they're sitting at. I'd say conservatively seven wins and the Giants are at four or five wins and we wouldn't be having this discussion, but you can only play who's on your schedule and the Giants have managed enough wins to be in first place, at least as of the time of this recording. 
Hey, even if your Washington R words win tomorrow against Pittsburgh, in a tie, the Giants would beat the R words because they beat them twice head to head. Now, after that sip of very stale Bud Light, I transition to point number two in college football. We are talking about Nick Saban's Alabama Crimson Tide. I'm going to try and get a guest who is either someone I went to college with who is in grad school at Alabama or someone on the Alabama student newspaper. It depends on availability. It is hard this time of year to get someone. We are in the stretch run of college. A lot of people trying to get things in before deadlines, end of semester, things of that nature. But I want to get an Alabama guest on who can help us peel back the onion of what it feels like on campus right now in Tuscaloosa because for an outside observer, it very much feels like the Alabama Crimson Tide are well on their way to another national championship under Nick Saban because they went out and outright bullied the LSU Tigers in Death Valley, which is not something that happens that often. Granted, this is an off year for LSU. They have not played well. Their quarterback situation has been a mess the entire year. They've had significant players opt out along the way. The defense has been a mess. It's complicated to evaluate what that kind of win against an LS a depleted LSU team means. But for all intents and purposes, I've been saying since Alabama housed A&M a couple weeks ago. No, that was a couple months ago, actually. That was, like, October. Yeah, that was pre-Halloween where Alabama housed A&M. It's Alabama's national championship to lose. I feel a lot more confident in this Alabama team than I did any of the two years with Tua as the starting quarterback or the year before that with Jalen Hurts as the quarterback. I feel like Sarkeesian has opened up that spread offense to the point that no one has the athletes on defense to defend them well enough. And if you are going to get into a shootout with Alabama, I don't think anyone has the firepower to keep up with them on offense. Because Alabama's defense hasn't been great this year, but it's just been good enough against the team, the good teams they've played that it's forced them into turnovers. We saw it against Georgia, where Stetson Bennett was forced into those bad situations. In retrospect, it's crazy that that line ever got to freaking Alabama minus three and a half, considering how much better George, uh, Alabama is than Georgia this year. But that was assuming that Nick Saban had tested positive for COVID-19 and wasn't going to be on the sideline that week. Of course, he took... It was later determined that that was a false positive. He was able to be on the sideline for that game, and they beat Georgia by two possessions easily without a shadow of a doubt where that defense forced Stetson Bennett to, into bad situations. But we've got to put respect on Alabama's offense, and I still don't think Mac Jones is going to translate particularly well to the NFL level because he's throwing to wide-open receivers just all the time in the world in the pocket. But at the very least, he's been a very good college quarterback. I mean, throwing to Devontae Smith. Oh, Devontae Smith is so good. He's not particularly fast. He's not particularly big. But he makes guys miss. He gets open, and he gets the ball in his chest. And he he's able to make possessions down the field. I mean... I don't want to go and call Alabama the Zach boys, but they kind of are. They're very good at taking possessions that are 
eight to ten yard completions, making one guy miss and getting the defense off to the races. And they do this all amongst the backdrop of having a physically imposing offensive line where Najee Harris can run the ball at any point for eight to nine yards at a clip because he's so physically imposing. He's not quite as good as Derrick Henry, but in terms of physical stature, a lot similar to how Bose Garborough was, where he was just so much bigger and stronger than everyone else, where no matter who was going to bounce into him and offer him, he was going to go through them. I will say, I do think Najee Harris is going to be an impactful player at the NFL level. He's probably going to be a second or third round pick, the way running backs are valued now, but I think it's Alabama's national title and lose. I'm not particularly convinced of Ohio State's ability to play defense against good offenses. I don't think Notre Dame or Clemson has the ability to score with Alabama against Alabama's defense. And I don't think... I just don't think Clemson's defense or Notre Dame's defense is good enough to stop Alabama. Just being quite frank with you from... I've watched as much college football as I humanly can. I've watched every single one of Clemson's games, every single one of Notre Dame's games, every single one of games, every single one of no- Alabama's games. Alabama's the best team in college football, and barring a shocking upset, I would not be surprised to see Alabama coast to a national title. When they play the Gators in the SEC title game in the Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta, Alabama's going to open that game as probably a 9.5 to 10-point favorite, and the over is going to be somewhere in the mid to high 60s. I think Florida has the ability to keep it relatively competitive because of their offense, but their defense is just not good enough, and I think that makes the Alabama an easy pencil in as the number one seed in the college football playoff, and if they were to play... A&M as a one-loss team, if they were to play Ohio State as a 4-5-0 and team, because it doesn't look like Ohio State's going to play Michigan this week. Granted, it's early in the week. Michigan still might have enough negatives of COVID tests to field the team this weekend. Big Ten has different rules in terms of eligibility, where if you have symptoms, if you have a positive test, how long you have to sit out before you're able to play. But if Ohio State's at 5-0, and Alabama's undefeated, Clemson has one loss, and Notre Dame has one loss, which is a ACC championship game defeat against Clemson. I feel like the likely college football playoff four will be Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and Ohio State in some version of that order. I assume that the Big Ten's going to change the rule and allow Ohio State into the Big Ten title game with only five wins as opposed to the traditional rule where it's one game less than the total number, ga- average number of games played, where it would have had to have been seven. Ohio State's going to get in. The Big Ten's going to make sure their team gets in. And Ohio State has a decent chance, but I don't think this iteration of Ohio State would have a particularly good chance against Alabama. I think if an Ohio State team were to have beaten Alabama, it would have been last year's iteration with Chase Young and J.K. Dobbins and the slightly more explosive offense and the significantly more explosive pass defense where they were able to get after the quarterback significantly better. Now, NFL takeaway number three. I do not have words to describe how badly 
the Jets tanked that last possession against the Oak. Excuse me, not Oakland. I swear to God, at some point in the course of this podcast, I will call them the Las Vegas Raiders the first time. This is not the first time, but someone, as, as my good friend Rich Eisen likes to call him, G, Triple G, William, Greg Williams, someone has to investigate Greg Williams for point shaving. I don't know on what planet you can call a zero blitz on third and ten with 12 seconds left. From midfield, with the offense having no timeouts left, if the Jets had simply kept two high safeties, the Raiders would have completed it underneath, and they would not have had time to run another play on offense. Every single one of my gambling friends loved the Jets' money line today because the Raiders traveling east is not a good trend. Traditionally, it's not good. And there, and since 2014, the Raiders were 0-5 outright in games where it was less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and it was 38 degrees today at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. Every single thing, every single factor, excuse me, all my journalism professors told me, don't use the word thing. Every single factor was favoring the Jets today against the Raiders, and they still fucking blew it. I don't know if Joe Douglas called down to the sideline and told them to play zero blitz. Which zero blitz means you don't have anyone back in coverage. When you're calling defense, the number traditionally means how many people you have back. Cover one, one, cover two, cover three, cover four, cover six. That's the number of people you're dropping back in coverage. And the Jets kept no one back in coverage. It was a cover zero blitz, whereas man coverage and the Jets had... Lamar Jackson, Jets corner Lamar Jackson, not Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson. Jets had cornerback Lamar Jackson on Henry Ruggs, one of the fastest people in the entire National Football League, and Ruggs cooked him. Cooked him. There is not a lot, excuse me, there are not, we got to be grammatically correct on the Upper Bowl GM podcast, there are not a lot of quarterback, corner cornerbacks who are able to stay with Henry Ruggs and man coverage. Lamar Jackson is not one of them. And they blew a game in which at one point they had a 95% win probability rate according to ESPN's graph. Depending where you look, ESPN, PFF, the win probability chart's a little different depending on what website you use because each website has slightly different metrics, but for all intents and purposes, the Jets should have won today. They looked pretty good on offense. They were able to run the ball very well against the Raiders' defense, which has struggled against the run this year, which makes sense. They limited the number of throws Sam Darnold had to make and put him into favorable passing situations in ways they hadn't this year. They forced turnovers on defense. Derek Carr did not look particularly good today, which makes sense. Derek Carr is a good quarterback when he is in favorable passing situations. When the defense doesn't know if it's going to be a run or pass, Derek Carr plays particularly well under center, and it allows John Gruden to call offense better. John Gruden is one of, if not the best offensive play callers in all of the NFL when he has the game the way he wants it. Michael Lombardi pointed this out, the former NFL executive, scout, writer at The Athletic, writer at The Ringer, podcast host. He's pointed this out a lot over the last two years. Since Gruden went back to Oakland, 
the Raiders are a lot better playing from in front because they're able to run the ball, it sets up their play action, and it allows Carr to throw the ball in favorable situations, and they're able to be a lot more efficient. Oakland has had, excuse me, Vegas has had a top 10 offense each of the last two years in terms of passing efficiency because they've managed to play with a lead a decent amount of the time. And when you're able to play with a lead as a play caller, it allows you to be less predictable and it sets you up for good passing down plays. Raiders have two of the best third down players in all of the National Football League. Hunter Renfro is, I believe, last going into this week, he was the fifth best player in the entire league in terms of third down conversions, where if you throw to him on third down, he's the fifth best player in the entire league in terms of picking up that first down. That's a valuable player. Even though Renfro doesn't put up gaudy passing, uh, gaudy receiving statistics, he still manages to be important in their offense, and it's hard to overstate how important that is for a quarterback to have a receiver he feels like he trusts on third down. Just wrapping up with the Jets, they are in pole position to secure Trevor Lawrence. And all I'm going to say before getting to my next college football point, because we've got 10 total points, 5 from the NFL, 5 from college. Don't fuck up the head coach. For the love of God, give Trevor Lawrence a good play caller, because if you give a good rookie, if you give a talented rookie quarterback the right play caller, he can be awesome. As Justin Herbert, prior to today, it's worth putting in the qualifier prior to today, put a rookie quarterback with a good play caller, they can be awesome. And after the last few years with Adam Gase's head coach, I will say I feel bad for my Jet fan friends, and they deserve better. Now, Well, most of the football-watching world was watching Patrick Mahomes, because, you know, as Carrie Underwood said, we've been waiting all day for Sunday night. Like true football degenerate, you know, I got multiple screens in my room. I'm going to watch more than one football game at a time. USC was playing Washington State on uh, Sunday night. They kicked off a little after 6 o'clock, and USC coasted. I don't have a ton to say about USC football. It's hard to gauge how good any Pac-12 team because they're all playing each other and they've only played, you know, four games, three games, two games, depending on what team and the COVID situation. And each school has different rules because the county they're in. I mean, for, for God's sakes, Stanford was practicing in a park on Thursday night. The Stanford football team had to practice in a park because their county didn't allow them to practice at their football field. So they had to practice in pads in a public park where, you know, there were people watching. And Stanford won on Saturday, by the way. Just worth pointing out that they practiced after playing and practicing in a public park. But I'll have a ton to say about USC. Still so important, undefeated team in the Pac-12. They got out to a 31-0 lead today. I mean, USC had a receiver go for four catches, 35 yards, and four touchdowns in the first half. I'm going to try and not butcher this kid's name, but Amon Ra St. Brown. Four catches, 35 yards, four touchdowns. That, uh, that's not a particularly easy thing to do in football. 
that's some Madden statistics, but USC, for all the shit Clay Helton's gotten over the last two years, they've managed to take care of business thus far this year. I don't, USC's not getting in the playoff at 5-0, 6-0, whatever, even with a Pac-12 title, but going into next year for Keenan Slovis, who I think has the chance to be a relatively highly drafted quarterback, it's important that he has a strong sophomore year and he has a building block going into his junior his draft year because scouts love traits. If you have the physical skills, they're always going to be willing to take a chance on you. But you got to be able to put up the counting stats and you got to have the look. This is one of those abstract things that people like me who aren't a professional scout won't totally be able to identify, but in terms of physical ability, you got to be able to get the ball into tight windows. You got to be able to move it in the pocket, whether it's up, left, right. You got to be able. Excuse me. You've got to be able to see the entire field, and you've got to manage to not turn the ball over. I'm not totally sure that Slovis will be a quarterback at the NFL level. But I think he has the physical traits where he's at least worth a look in the same vein as a From, as an Eason, where a team will take a day two or three pick to select him, put him in their quarterback room for a few years, and potentially give him a chance down the line. I don't think he's going to be a day one quarterback just because day one quarterbacks are pretty easy to eyeball just because, you know, you know what a day one quarterback at the draft looks like in terms of skills. They can throw it anywhere on the field, or they're lightning quick, what have you. Day one quarterbacks have multiple plus traits, and I'm still working on my own personal criteria of what the quarterback traits are in terms of plus, but I think we can say arm strength, decision making, pre-snap, pocket presence, And I think, hmm, I'll say speed. I'll say speed as the five tools. We got five tools in baseball. Quarterbacks should have five tools in football. I'll say arm strength, decision-making, pre-snap, pocket mobility, and speed. I'll say those are the five skills for a quarterback. I think Slovis has the arm strength, and he has the pocket presence. Pre-snap is hard to judge in college because they have the play cards, and they're not really calling audibles at the line. They're adjusting. They're looking back to the sideline for adjustments. And Slovis isn't, like, blisteringly fast. So I'll say he has between two and three skills, and I think that's enough where a team is going to be willing to take a chance on him at the next level. And to be frank, that's the main reason I watch college football without a vested rooting interest in any particular team, is I want to know who's going to be good on Sundays. And I think Slovis has an outside shot of being a solid college quarterback. And now that we've talked about a college quarterback that I think will be good, we're going to talk about a college quarterback in the NFL who's one of my college favorite college football players of all time. Put some damn respect on Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns. I'm going to put my hand up 
I know this is bad radio and you can't physically see me right now, but I got my right hand up and I'm saying that's on me. I thought the Titans would roll on the Browns because they've been piss poor against the run all year and they have one good player in the secondary. And I thought that would set up easy situations for Derrick Henry to run the ball and Tannehill to use play action to gash them. And by God, did the freaking Browns prove me wrong. Baker looked freaking awesome today. Aside from the game a couple weeks ago against the Bengals where they won on that last second drive on that sort of people's Jones, this is the best game of Baker Mayfield's career at the NFL level. He was throwing dots. As much shit as Mayfield gets on Twitter for being corny, for being overly confident, for being up on bad teams, he put a spanking on the Titans today. And yes, the Titan did manage to get back into the game late today in garbage time, but we've got to give Baker credit for taking what was in front of him, throwing the ball extremely well, finding his receivers, and yes, even though the Browns don't have Odo Beckham, they still have a passing game. Peoples-Jones looks like a legitimate number three receiver thus far. It's extremely early in his development at the NFL level to say that confidently because of how frequently Baker likes to throw to the number two and three receiver in the offense because they have more favorable matchups. And it's why he's throwing to guys like Higgins this year. It's why he's throwing to Harrison Bryan a decent bit in the red zone. I'm not saying the Browns are going to win the AFC, but they have shown significant progress from last year to this year. And I'm not going to dignify the head coach from last year's name, who is the Giants tight end coach this year, but you can see what a real head coach like Kevin Stefanski's impact is right away. The Browns are not blowing these close games, and they're taking care of business. Yes, they have two horrendous, outright horrendous losses to the Steelers and Ravens, and a bad loss against the Raiders, but for all intents and purposes, it will take a disaster for the Browns to not make the playoffs this year, and Baker hasn't been as good as I thought he would be at the NFL level. He really struggles when he gets blitzed. He's not the best decision maker under pressure, but at least this year, we gotta say, He's a winning quarterback, and he's helping the Browns win games. He helped. An average quarterback would not have beaten the Titans today. He was throwing the ball into tight windows to receivers that were not wide open. Yes, Baker is not as good as I thought he would be, and I'm sorry for buying into the hype going into last year. It's easy to... Eat the L on someone like Baker. Because I was wrong. I, I'll flat out admit I was wrong. But it's hard to say where I fall in terms of the state of the Big 12 at the moment. Because coming into this year, you know, we all figured Lincoln Riley and Oklahoma would figure it out and they'd be in the Big 12 title game. And Oklahoma State has a solid defense. West Virginia has a really good defense. Texas is, you know, 
Texas. They're coasting on legacy, but you know. Still Texas. Gotta put a little respect on their friggin' name. I mean, come on. But it's time. I gotta say. I believe in Matt Campbell. To the my Jet fan friends that are listening to this episode of the podcast. If you end up with Matt Campbell, the Iowa State football coach, as your head coach for the 2021 season with Trevor Lawrence as your quarterback, you will not be in bad shape. That dude can build a frigging culture. And yes, we talk about culture at nauseum in every aspect of life, whether it's sports, business, politics, what have you. Matt Campbell has all those Iowa State guys friggin' believe in. They are not the most talented team, but by God, do they manage to eke things out. They have put a hurting on some teams in the Big 12. They beat Texas down to the wire last week. They pulled out a solid, convincing win this week. I am very convinced about Matt Campbell's ability to build a winning program, and I think some team, whether it's Michigan or Texas at the college level, or the Jets at the NFL level, will do well with Matt Campbell at with the headset on on their sideline. What he's done with Brock Purdy, who's an interesting day two prospect at the quarterback position going into his, I want to say, junior year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Purdy's a junior this year. And I think he's an interesting prospect at the NFL level. I don't think, granted, this is my college football bias where I think anyone from the college level who's at least decent could be good at the NFL level if they have the right coach. I think Purdy could be halfway decent at the NFL level if he's got the right scheme. I mean, you can make any quarterback halfway decent at the NFL level with good scheme. I mean, we see what the 49ers do because Kyle Shanahan calls a good offense, but friggin' Nick Mullins is. And Mullins has really good efficiency numbers, and his expected points per attempt numbers are off the charts because the 49ers are so good. And, you know, Nick Mullins isn't good. But I think Purdy is good, but Matt Campbell has helped make him a great college quarterback. What he's done with Brees Hall at running back, I really like what Iowa State's done this year after being a preseason darling for the last few years. All my friends know how I always talk about how in the preseason the Carolina Hurricanes and hockey are always a preseason darling because everyone likes their underlying numbers and think that this might be the year they finally make the jump. Iowa State is always the preseason darling in the Big 12 where the analysts and the gambling community talk themselves into Iowa State as being a legitimate contender to win the Big 12. This is finally the year where I think they actually could win the Big 12. They're going to play Oklahoma in a few weeks at the Big 12 title game in Jerry World, and Oklahoma will probably open as a a 5.5 to 7 point favorite, and I would... I, myself, will probably bet Iowa State as the underdog, at least with the spread, because I feel like what Matt Campbell's done with Brock Purdy is extremely impressive. We're almost done. 
I know we're in the home stretch of this episode. I promise I'm not going to beat your drum and waste your time. Just a couple more quick observations. Number nine. I can't go without saying how important NFL Red Zone is to my consumption of football. It was the 200th episode this week. It allows me to keep an eye on every single game. And then between Monday of after football Sunday to the following Sunday, I'm able to rewatch games from the course of that Sunday on Game Pass to get a better idea of the course of and the outcomes of those games. Red Zone helps me keep an eye on what I need to know so that when I go back to watch, I need to know what I see. What set up the big play that Scott Hansen is talking about on Red Zone? How did that wide receiver get so wide open on a play-action pass? Well, you see, it's because they had run the ball out of a similar formation in this set, set it up. That's something I only see on Game Pass that I don't see on Red Zone. You see the big plays, the chunk plays, the touchdowns on Red Zone. I go back and watch the plays on Game Pass to see how is that play-action so open, had that corner fall for that double move, that kind of thing. And it's an invaluable tool for people who want to keep a track of everything. And it's why Red Zone is so, so important for the consumer. Today was a great, great day for Red Zone. The 1 o'clock games, that Jaguars-Vikings game had no business being as fun as it was getting into overtime. The Jets and Raiders game. The Jets should have put that game away on the drive before they had to punt it back to the Raiders and give the Raiders a chance to come back and win the game, which they ultimately did. But that's why they play the games. Spreads be damned in the witching hour. We saw it today. I don't think the Vikings are particularly good, but they managed to eke out a win as a double-digit favorite at home against Mike Lennon. I'm sure if they make the playoffs, I'll have my friend Mackenzie back in a few weeks to talk about her expectations going into the playoff game, but... Kirk Cousins wasn't good today. He threw a pick six to Joe Sherbert. Shout out Browns legend Joe Sherbert, by the way. Part of me wishes the Browns had kept him because it would have made their defense a lot more complete, but I understand for financial reasons why they couldn't. But it was a really good day for Red Zone is kind of where I want to leave this point. The witching hour between 3.15, 4.30, the best time of the week. Re- Here's what you do. To quote the immortal Mike Francesa, at a quarter to three, go check the scores for all the one o'clock games and write them down on a piece of paper or notes at or a notes page on your phone. And then go check them again when they're over. And if you're watching Red Zone, you'll have an idea of how all the games got there. But if you're some poor schmuck who doesn't have Red Zone, and you only got your CBS and Fox broadcast for the 1 o'clock window, and you pull up your ESPN, whatever app you use to check scores, and you see just how quick things change. An hour of real time is years in terms of a football game. An hour of real time is six possessions total, five, eight, depends on the game. 
We saw some really crazy games come down on the wire on Red Zone today. And it's why I gotta give a shout-out of appreciation to Scott Hansen, because I don't I couldn't stand in front of all those TVs for seven and a half hours without going to the bathroom. I could do seven and a half hours without eating anything, only drinking water, but I would need to take a bathroom break at some point in that seven and a half hours. I use the bathroom like every 30 minutes on a football Sunday because I'm usually drinking. Scott Hansen, that poor dude, he's talking for seven and a half hours straight, and he can't use the bathroom. That guy is probably drinking water every single time he's not talking. Make sure his voice isn't raspy and gross on air. And he still manages to do his job without having to go to the bathroom. He's been on the air for 200 episodes over the course of 11 years. He's taken one bathroom break. Scott Hansen is a king. And point number 10 and the last point of this episode We got to give Notre Dame the respect they deserve. There's a part of me that just dislikes when Notre Dame is relevant because so often it's against a cupcake schedule against relevant opponents. And then, like, you know, USC, Navy, and, like, one or two other halfway decent teams. But this year, Notre Dame put their nuts on the table. They played an ACC schedule, and they're going to go into that ACC title game against Clemson as less than a 10-point underdog, and I think they have a halfway decent chance of beating Clemson outright for a second time. Yes, I know the first time they beat Clemson, it was in South Bend without Trevor Lawrence, at quarterback for the Tigers, but Clemson's defense, excuse me, Notre Dame's defense is very good. We cannot make we cannot discount how good Notre Dame's defense has been against good opponents. Yes, they gave up 40-plus points against Clemson, but Clemson is one of the most dynamic offenses in all of college football. So, I'm going to stop making Brian Kelly manslaughter jokes. If you don't know that story, you can Google it. I promise it'll be in the first three results. It's a very well-known story. If you've been watching college football as long as I have, you know all about it. But I cannot go without saying how important Ian Book's development as the quarterback for the Fighting Irish has been to their success this year. I'm always, always always skeptical of Notre Dame's quarterback simply because they never really play anyone particularly good, but Ian Book's been pretty damn good this year in terms of college quarterbacks. He's not going to play in the NFL. It's just he doesn't have the arm strength. He's more tools. He's agile, but not fast. He's gamey, but not gritty. He might get a shot in the NFL as a backup and get thrown into chaos a couple times and the team will realize this guy probably shouldn't be anything more than someone in our quarterback room, but we got to give Book respect. He's been, I'll say, very good. I won't say elite. He's on the outside of the Heisman conversation just because some of the other guys have had such good years. But I'd say he's probably the number five Heisman candidate. 
I'd say Trask is probably one. Mac Jones is two. Trevor Lawrence is three because he missed a few games. Number four is probably Brees Hall, the Iowa State running back. And then you could make a case for Ian Book. I mean, people would probably make a case for ETN, Travis ETN, the running back at Clemson. But you can make a case for Book as number four and number five in the Heisman voting. That's reasonable. He's been the quarterback for a team that's going to go to the playoffs. And that's really all you can ask for, if we're being completely honest. I mean, you're the quarterback for one of the four best teams in the country. You've played at a level worthy of being in the top four or five for the Heisman. I think Book's had his fair share of moments. He was electric in that game against Clemson. I won't say he's the reason they won that game, but he certainly helped them win that game. I mean, they had to score into the mid-40s, and you don't do that without your quarterback playing particularly well. I've given Notre Dame credit on my podcast, which is something I thought it would take a little while to do. I do have a Notre Dame-centric episode of the podcast coming on this Friday. I've lined up the guest. We're going to record Thursday night going into this weekend. We're going to talk about Notre Dame football, the Brian Kelly era, how they got here, how he's established this long-term culture where he was able to build a playoff contender in a way that wasn't, that's more legitimate, excuse me, more legitimate than the last time they made the playoff where they got absolutely smoked last time around in the first round of the playoff where Alabama smoked them. But I wanted to give this kind of takeaway episode as a quick hitter for people who don't get to watch every single game. This is your key takeaways. There are more things you're going to hear. There are trends. There are individual stats. But these are the five storylines in college and the NFL you have to take away going into tomorrow. Yes. There were two Monday night football games. There's a Tuesday night football game. I know I said I was going to have the Notre Dame episode on Wednesday. That got pushed for the Friday edition, so it's going to be recorded on Thursday, come out on Friday. Still trying to line up either the Mike Tyson episode for Wednesday, that'll come out on Wednesday, or, or I have a secret episode where Between one or two guests, depending on availability, it's going to either be a basketball episode or a L.A. Chargers episode. Depends on availability. But before I sign off, got to remind everyone, this podcast, everywhere you can listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Gonna try and get on Audio Boom. This is up on Amazon. I'm almost 99.9% sure. Got a YouTube series that's gonna start this week based on the feedback from one of my editors at Gotham SM, the blog, where you can follow and get some of my writing. Twitter's the Gotham S at Gotham SM. The name of the blog is Gotham Sports Network. There's Giants, Rangers, and Giants Rangers. Mets, Jets, Islanders. Once we get a little bit better idea of hockey season, I'm going to start having hockey-centric episodes. And 
Do I have the Rolodex of hockey team fans for this podcast? We are going to know more than any other podcast on the planet Earth. I promise we're going to have a great, great season preview for hockey. Until Wednesday, I will see you guys next time.